All right, all right. Well, good to be with you guys this morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Dan, and I have the privilege of serving as uh, one of our pastors here alongside Jason Phillips, who is our Campus Life pastor. Again, I'd like to thank you for not sitting in the first two rows right here. Um, these are reserved for me, so thank you. I appreciate that. Um, hey, if this is your first time at LifePoint, or maybe the last couple weeks you've been checking us out, wanting to know what, what is this church about, uh, we'd have a great opportunity for you to take a next step and just get a little bit more information. You can take your phones out and you can scan one of the QR codes that is on one of the, uh, one of the seats in front of you that's going to take you to a landing page where you will find a number of things, uh, including a guest welcome card uh, that just asks a little information about you, but ultimately creates a moment where we can set up a time to meet, have a conversation, share more about what we believe God has called us to in this church, and hear more about your story and see where those things fit together. Uh, And as a way of saying thank you for taking the time to fill out that card, you'll see that we uh, will give a $5 donation to one of our partner ministries in your honor, just as a way of saying thank you, thank you for being here. The other thing you're going to find on that landing page is a spot for notes where you can follow along in the message today. And like always, uh, I work very hard on the notes and I like to have a high click rate. So if you would indulge me by please opening the notes uh, and following along, those things matter very much to me. Um, All right, we're gonna go ahead and uh, get uh, started here. I wanna share just quickly uh, that we've got a couple interesting things happening right now. One, uh, you uh, will see behind me that uh, at LifePoint, we have the opportunity to regularly practice uh, in the, the biblical practice of stewardship and generosity, which means we are called as followers of Jesus to uh, free give back a portion of what God has entrusted to us. Not just so that we can have a nice church with fancy things uh, and nice things, but so that we can be a larger part of what God is doing uh, across the country and across the world. I want to share with you an exciting update from one of our uh, partner ministries in St. Louis. Uh, And this is uh, tied to a longer story I want to share with you. In 1750, George Lyle was uh, was born uh, as a slave in Virginia, became uh, one of the first to freely emancipate himself, uh, and uh, he went on to uh, become one of the first American mis- North American missionaries sent out of North America to another part of the world where he went to serve in Jamaica, planting churches that reached hundreds of people that uh, through generations have reached thousands of people, uh, transforming uh, and bringing transformation in the name of Jesus. And just recently, one of our partner ministries in St. Louis opened up uh, the joy George Lyle Center in St. Louis, bringing together all these different kinds of church resources and leadership development for the sake of planting more churches in the St. Louis area. And the reason I'm sharing this is because they are a part of our network. And when we give at LifePoint, we are giving to see more works like the George Lyle Center take root in that community. And by God's grace, maybe in our own community and others, as more and more churches are planted uh, to see more and more people transformed by the message of Jesus. So just as a reminder, as you give, you're giving to bigger things than just life point. You're giving and taking part in what God is doing around the country and around the world. The second thing you'll notice is when you uh, sat down today, you may have sat on one of these uh, life group uh, documents. And these, these are really fancy. They show us all of the life group options that we have over the next term at uh, LifePoint. And I'll say this, life, life groups 
beliefs are not just a good idea for you as a follower of Jesus. We believe they are uh, a crucial thing as you seek to follow Jesus in authentic community. Uh, You can take your phone and scan that QR code to see a whole list of all of the life groups across all of the LifePoint campuses. Now you'll notice on there uh, that we don't have them broken down necessarily by campus. We tend to break them down by region so that you can be in a life group with folks closest to where you live. Ideally, uh, then you'll be able to say to your neighbor, like, hey, come join me in my life group. It's down the street. We'd love to have you there, right? We want to break it down by region if, if possible. So you'll hear more about life groups over the next coming weeks as we start our first term Uh, next week. Really excited about that, and we'll share more about it next week, but you can find out more information online by scanning that QR code. Okay, none of that counts as my sermon time. Dalton, don't, don't clock me on that part. Now I can get started. Okay. Uh, We are in a series called Broken Mirrors. Uh, Broken Mirrors, looking at how broken people reflect a perfect God. And we've been talking a bit through the New Testament book of Hebrews uh, that has this fascinating chapter, uh, chapter 11, sometimes called the Hall of Fame of Faith, where it takes these individuals, these stories from the Old Testament, uh, and shares how they are a model of faith. And we are often left with a question looking at Hebrews chapter 11 of like, how on earth is this a model of anything positive? Uh, Because many of the stories in there follow deeply flawed people. And I think, instead of being troubled by how God would use that, I think it is something that leads us to marvel at the mystery and beauty of how God uh, every day uses broken people to reflect his perfection. That he doesn't, uh, he knows we are not perfect individuals, and yet he still uses, chooses to use even our flawedness for his glory and his fame. And so we're tracing this theme uh, in this series. So we're using each one of these stories we find in Hebrews 11, like a portal, and jumping back uh, to the story it references. Today is a very, very interesting story. I have what I believe is the first part of a seven-part series, uh, and no other teaching pastor thought that we should preach seven weeks on this passage. So So I'm doing it all in one, okay? We're going to shake and move today. Uh, We're going to look at the story of a man named Samson. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open up to the Old Testament book of Judges, the Old Testament book of Judges. If you're in Deuteronomy, keep going to the, to the right a little bit. If you're in uh, Joshua, keep going to the right. Uh, if you're in the Samuels or Kings, hang a left there. Uh, we'll be in the book of Judges. As always, the table of contents is your friend if you need help finding uh, this little book. It is a very encouraging story about Israel's descent into madness uh, as they become the opposite of what God has called them to be. So in a moment, we're going to jump into this, but uh, let me pray first, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we uh, pause this morning. We know that you are one uh, who knows every need of every single person represented here in this room. And you invite us to come before you as a loving father who knows what we need before we open up our mouths to ask, as one who delights to give good gifts to his children. Lord, some of us know that we are very weighed down uh, by uh, what has maybe happened in our lives in the last week or the last year. And so on the cusp of a new year, God, we uh, are eager to see you do something different 
Lord, we pray that uh, you would uh, break through maybe the slumber of our soul, wake us up to the reality and the beauty, the good news of Jesus. Lord, some of us may have been following you for years uh, and we have these stories that just seem to be stuck in a rut for us. Lord, I pray that you would show us that your word is living and active. It's vibrant, that it is powerful. We pray that as we look at your word and your story today, uh, Lord, you would uh, do more than just uh, change our thinking, but you would pierce our hearts. Help us, uh, as we look at the book of Judges, to not be judgmental and say, hey, we could never become like that. Lord, even if we look at the shadow side of your people, Lord, show us where there is a shadow side in us. God, remind us what, what you have called us to be a people who love you, who pursue what is right, good, and true, and beautiful. Lord, so in that way, on, th- on this weekend, uh, we're, we're mindful of what uh, the, the larger conversation uh, about our, our own nation's history. We're, we're mindful of uh, Dr. King and his life and legacy. And God, I pray uh, that as we have those conversations, you would again stir within us a desire to see you raise up more people who care deeply about what you say is right, good, and true in this world. That you would raise up a generation of people who are willing to spend their lives for the sake of others for what is good. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us today. We thank you that there are uh, many other churches in Central Ohio uh, meeting this morning. And we pray blessing on them, uh, God, and we ask that you would uh, speak through their uh, teaching. We ask that you would uh, provide for them. I think specifically just north of us in Westerville, I think of uh, Grace uh, Church that is just getting started planting and uh, Pastor Jordan there. Lord, I pray blessing on their time today. God, that you'd richly provide for their needs and uh, over the many years of ministry together in this region, God, we would uh, see them as friends and co-laborers in the gospel. And uh, if there are ways we can encourage and support and uh, strengthen them. Lord, I pray that you'd reveal that to us. God, we wanna see other churches here for your fame and your glory, not our own. So Lord, we do trust you today. We thank you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Judges chapter 14. In an interesting way, we're gonna talk a bit about marriage today. Uh, And marriage is uh, very powerful. Some of us who have been married uh, know very well the ways that we have been changed and formed by our spouse. Let me give you one quick example. Uh, when I, before I was married, I really enjoyed this activity. I, I almost forget the word for it now. It was like you go out into nature and you try and live there for a little bit. Some people call it vacation. Other people call it camping, I think is the uh, camping. Uh, you go out, and uh, this is something I grew up with. I was a Boy Scout. I loved being out in the wilderness. I loved sleeping in tents. I loved sleeping in the camper, cooking over a fire, and all of this stuff as a kid. Absolutely loved it. And then I met the woman who would be my spouse. And uh, eventually, I started doing vacations with her family. And I remember the first time we went to the beach, uh, we stayed in a condo on the beach, and uh, I set my bag down, and Courtney's like, all right, let's go to the beach. And I said, we don't have to build where we're gonna live for the next like, three weeks. Like, what about, we've gotta catch fish to eat? Like, what, what are we gonna do? And she said, no, we just go. And I, and I realized in that moment, ah, camping is just like vacation, but harder. <laughs> Some people love it. 
and I slowly started to see myself uh, being drawn away from this thing I used to love, and still in many ways, I, I love the, the picturesque version of it, um, but, but formed to love something new. And this, in many ways, uh, happens to us as we are uh, married. We, we learn to love something else. We are formed uh, in ways that maybe we recognize or don't recognize, expect or don't, don't expect. We are not the same person that we once were because marriage is powerful. And I think what we're looking at today is a story of marriage, but it's not so much a marriage to a person, though certainly we'll see that in Samson's story, but ultimately we see a marriage to a worldview or a culture. What I mean by that is in the same way that marriage can kind of change you in ways that you might not recognize at first and maybe only see over the long arc of, uh, of your own story, I think the cultural moment we find ourselves in, any cultural moment you would find yourself in, has an incredibly formative process on your life in ways that you don't recognize at first, ways we don't even see or feel, but we can look back and see, oh, I, I am being formed by something. The music we listen to, the books we read, the, uh, the podcasts we digest, all of this stuff, the movies we watch, all of this tell us a very specific type of narrative of what is good, right, and beautiful in the world, and we start to, uh, to agree with that, whether or not we recognize we're doing that. Our hearts are incredibly formative. All of us. We are constantly being formed and shaped by the world around us. And so when I talk about marriage, yes, we're talking about marriage between a, a two people, a man and a woman here in Samson's story, but also uh, a marriage into a larger cultural moment that has uh, equally, maybe even more powerful formative process in our hearts and minds. And this is what we see in Samson's story in the book of Judges. But before we dig into that, let me tell you a little bit about where this comes from uh, and what is going on in Samson's story because the book of Judges is notoriously a tricky book to understand. It's one of these books in the Old Testament that kind of shows up and uh, sometimes some of the stories are referenced, but we don't always have a great place to, uh, you know, to, to file away like, okay, what, what was that story about again? How did it fit into something bigger? But let me give you just a quick overview of the book of Judges. Judges, uh, again, is the story of God's people's descent into madness. And there is a very clear cycle that plays out over and over and over again in the book of Judges. God has created them uh, to uh, serve and bless the nations, to be a light to the, to the rest of the world, but in Judges, what you see is the people have given themselves over to something else. They now say that uh, we no longer need God to provide for us, we're going to provide for ourselves, we're gonna look to the world around us to provide for us, and it's very interesting how this has developed. In the book of Genesis, you might remember the story of uh, Abraham, who is the, the father of the Jewish people. In Genesis chapter 12, he was called by God, and you get this uh, mission statement given to Abram that's gonna, or Abraham that's going to be uh, the thing that God is going to do through all of his people through generations. Abraham, uh, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, you see he's gonna call, he calls Abraham and says, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky, uh, and here it is right at the end, that I am going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. All the nations on earth will be blessed through you. 
You see a similar idea in uh, the book of Exodus. Remember, uh, these people grow from Genesis chapter 12 all the way into the book of Exodus, and numerous people who've been enslaved by the Egyptians, and uh, God uses a man named Moses to bring deliverance for his people, and he, he says to Moses over and over and over again, hey, this is the reason that I have raised you up, not just so that my people will be freed from slavery in Egypt, but so that my name will be famous among the nations that people will know me, that they will see what I've done in you and your lives and know that there is none like me. And you get to the book of Deuteronomy and I want you to imagine for a moment the the people of Israel who are gathered and they are standing on the banks of the Jordan River before they enter into the promised land, the land that they have heard about for generations and generations. God said, I would give you this land. But before they enter in, they pause and Moses gets a little long-winded and uh, preaches a sermon to them that we know as the book of Deuteronomy. And in that book, or in that message to them, as they're on the cusp of entering into the promised land, he says, here, this, this is what God wants you to remember before you go into this land, before you experience all of what he has promised for generations, what we've been waiting for, what we've been wandering in the desert for 40 years, waiting to get to, uh, and we have what is recognized as one of the most important commandments of the Old Testament. He says this in Deuteronomy uh, chapter six, you may know the passage very well. They're on the cusp of entering into the land and uh, Moses reminds the people, he says this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And it's interesting what happens there in that, that phrase. We, we hear that, uh, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. And sometimes I think we, we, we view that only in a numerical sense. As in Moses is reminding them, hey, you're, you're monotheists, okay? Take it that way. But that word one in Hebrew is a very, very interesting word. It's not one that, it's not a word that often means like the number one. It means something more like one of a kind or unique or there's nothing else like it. And so then imagine what they hear on the cusp of the Jordan River before they go into the promised land where people already live. He says, before you go there, here's what you need to know. There's no one like God. There's no one like Yahweh. There's no other God like him. There's no one else who's delivered his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and he rehearses the story of the Exodus again and looks back at all of what God has done and says there's none like him. There's absolutely none like him. And I want you to love him with all of your heart, your soul, your might as a way to say with, your, with every fiber of your being, your allegiance is to, to this one who there is no one else like. And we have these uh, commandments that uh, Moses goes into in the book of Deuteronomy where he begins to uh, warn them about intermingling too much with the nations who live there. He says, uh, because it's gonna pull at your heart. In other words, like we said, we are all uh, formative people. He says, Israel, you're gonna go into this land and people are gonna pull on your affections. They're gonna pull on your heart. You're gonna be formed in uh, the world you go into. And I want you to remember, there's no one else like the Lord. None. And it's this warning. They enter into the land and almost immediately neglect everything that Moses has talked about with them. And this, then, is the book of Judges. As the people seek to do what is right, not in God's eyes, but right in their own eyes and make their own rules and set their own standard, their own agenda and say, God, you need to conform to what we say is good, right, 
and true. And you see this cycle in the book of Judges. I'll put it on the screen behind me, this cycle that plays out regularly where uh, Israel does uh, five things. They fall into sin, adultery. They, they start worshiping the gods of the nations. Uh, they are enslaved. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge uh, and Israel is delivered and it uh, plays out in every story in the book of Judges. And yet what you start to notice as you read this story is that it's a bit like a downward spiral because this they start doing less and less of these things in each one of the stories. And uh, the story of Samson is the story of the last judge who represents Israel's, they've bottomed out. They have absolutely rejected everything that God has called them to do and be in the world. They are not a blessing to the nations, they are a curse to the nations. They failed to live the way that God has called and created them to live, and here they are, in Judges 14. When I talk about uh, being married to the culture, here's where I'm pulling this imagery from. Look with me at Judges 14, verses one and two. It says this, and Samson went down to Timnah, at, uh, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, and then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me, as my wife, and it, it's an interesting strategy, I think. Uh, it's a little coarse, but this is, this is where Israel is at now. Samson is uh, not just a picture of something he is doing. He is a picture, a commentary on what the people of Israel have done, what they have become. They see, they take, and I find it very interesting that as we chart through the course of Samson's story, of which we will only look at a portion today, we're going to see that Samson, in doing what is right in his own eyes, we're going to see Samson miss three things. It's the same things that we often miss. It's the same things the church often misses. We're going to see him miss three things. The first thing he's going to miss is seeing his own sin. Because Samson has married into the cultural moment of uh, the cultural milieu of his day, makes no distinction between the way God has called him to live and how the rest of the world is living, he misses seeing his own sin. Here's what I mean by that. Remember, we talked about this. In the book of Deuteronomy, there are all of these regulations about how uh, Israel, God's people, are supposed to conduct themselves among the nations. And one of the things God says, I don't want you to do, is I don't want you to marry into the nations around you. I don't want you to give your sons uh, as husbands to the, uh, to, to the other nations. I don't want you to give your daughters into the other nations. And here's the thing. It's not because it had anything to do with where people were from. It had everything to do with what people believed. He says, he says when, when you marry in that way, what you're going to do is you're going to, take a, you're going to borrow some of their worldview inevitably because this is what marriage does. It forms you. It changes you. You're going, to, you're going to borrow some of that. You're going to try and mix it with what I have called for you. You're going to try and mash all of these things together. And again, this is exactly what Samson now has done. He sees uh, this woman and he says to his parents, go get her for me. She's going to be my wife. And they put up a little bit of a uh, you know, pushback in uh, verse two, but at the end of verse three, he comes back and says, no, no, go get her for me, for she is right in my eye. And what's interesting about it is uh, you get the sense that Samson doesn't even see that there's something wrong with what he's done. 
He doesn't even recognize that this is in uh, clear violation of the way that God has called him to live and uh, that, that he is doing something that God has called him uh, not to do. I think that's just a very clear picture of what uh, the word sin means uh, when we use that in a biblical sense. It means to do the thing God has called you not to do or to not do the thing God has called you to do. And this is what Samson uh, completely gives himself over to without even recognizing it. He doesn't even see it as an issue. And I think that if you know, we kind of reflect a little bit more. I think that's not something that just shows up in Samson's story. I th- it's something that shows up in my story. It shows up in our story. We don't recognize the way we have married into a value system around us and been formed by it. I think we don't recognize the way that we miss sin in our own lives. I remember a very... <coughs> An interesting conversation I had uh, with a couple, this was a few years back, who was uh, about to get married, and uh, I always have a, a standard set of questions I go through when I'm doing a, a wedding. Um, you know, I'll ask about the couple, you know, try and get to know them. Ideally, you know, I've known them for a while at this point, um, but I remember them sharing part of their story, how they'd become followers of Jesus, how they're trying to honor him, and uh, they want to, uh, want to take this next step, get married, and, you know, all, all good, and, uh, and so I start to ask a few more questions, and, you know, they shared with me uh, that they are currently living together, currently sleeping together, and so, you know, I paused the conversation. It wasn't like, you know, I'm throwing lightning bolts or anything like that, but I said, okay, let's talk about that. What does it look like to honor Jesus in your relationship from here on out to the moment you get married? And I think one of the things that's gonna require of you is to, you know, not be sleeping together, not be living together for this season. It's a way to honor God. Say, say my relationship is, uh, is not about just what I want, but Lord, we wanna give this over to you. And I remember uh, the guy looked at me and he said, yeah, you know, the thing is, like, I just don't feel like the Lord's convicting me of that, so I don't think we need to do that. And, you know, at first I'm like, well, I'm convicting you of it, so. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I got kind of, you know, salty about it. We, you know, had a very different, con- we, you know, we had a longer conversation after that. And I started to think, that's not just, I'm not picking on this couple. I do the same thing. I use the same logic. God's not convicting me of that. It's not an issue in my life. I remember having a conversation with Courtney not too long ago. This is while we were back in Chicago still and kind of wrestling through a really, really challenging season uh, in ministry and our family together. And I remember sitting down one time and Courtney said, I feel like you have been angry for the last year, constantly. And I remember thinking, I don't think the Lord's convicted me of that. <laughs> and yet she was able to point out, yeah, but look how, look at this conversation you just had with your son. Look at this conversation you had with, uh, with your daughter. Look at, look at the way that you've uh, been engaged or not engaged with our family over the last, she went B, C, D. All of a sudden, this logic of, well, God hasn't convicted me of that yet, starts to fly out the window. Because what I recognized is that I'd actually, <laughs> not that it wasn't an issue, it's that I had grown numb to what was actually happening in my own heart, in my own mind, and that had just as much of an effect uh, on my family as if I had willingly stepped into those things. 
I was blinded to my own sin, to my own brokenness, to my own failure, and yet it's still uh, spilling out into my relationships around me. That, that's what happens in our sin is we marry into a culture that is forming us in ways we don't even recognize. Our sin begins to spill out in ways that we don't even recognize, and we're blind to it. I think that's what makes, one of the things that makes sin so insidious in our lives. We're so often unaware of how profoundly it affects the person, uh, maybe even the person you love the most. We miss our own sin. You keep going, uh, it's not the only thing Samson misses. Uh, he also, uh, look with uh, this verse four, it says this, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines at the time. The Philistines ruled over Israel. You see, I think we move into this next scene where not only does Samson, uh, because he is married into the culture around him, does he miss his own sin, but I think uh, because his family has married into the culture around them, they miss seeing the ways that God is at work. They do not understand, they did not know that what was happening is actually something from the Lord because they were see- because he was seeking an opportunity to deliver them from the Philistines. God's hand is at work in ways that they just do not see. Why? Because they have been blinded from it. And I think that this plays out in an interesting way in our own hearts and minds today. Maybe, maybe where we see it most is, I think when we go through really hard seasons of uh, suffering and pain, the, the, the moment in your life where it feels like the rug has been pulled out from under you, and you're trying to make sense of like, what just happened? But some of us have been there. Uh, some of us are there very recently, are still reeling from uh, that moment in our lives. And something happens in in our own hearts when we hit those seasons because we start to ask a very familiar set of patterns or questions that nobody has taught us to ask. We just have kind of picked up on it. God, why are you doing this to me? What, what, What have I done to deserve this? You see, what begins to become evident, we might not use this language, but but what becomes evident is that we have married into a cultural value of something that looks a lot like karma. It says if you do good things, God owes you good things. If you do bad things, uh, he kind of owes you bad things. He may not give them to you, but you still deserve them. And so we operate on this paradigm of if I do good, I will get good from God. If I do bad, I will get bad from God back and forth. And then when we hit those seasons and we start asking God, I feel like I've been a good person. I feel like I've been trying my best. I feel like I've really tried to, uh, to, to, to here's, like, here's how my good things outweigh some of my bad things. We have this internal dialogue that goes back and forth. And what's really happened uh, is not that God has failed us. It's not that he has, uh, he has abandoned us. It's that he's failed to meet the artificial standard we have created for him. That says, God, you owe me something better than what I'm getting right now. You owe me more. And we get stuck in this rut. Why do we say that? It's because we have been formed to view God as someone who owes us something. And every good thing we do gets another, another uh, you know, it's like more evidence of, of why he should do something good for me next time. We've bought into this system. 
And what happens when we ask these questions, not that they're, they're natural questions to ask, but they ultimately they, they end up blinding us from even considering that God may be doing something that we just might not understand yet. That we don't get yet. Yes, that it's painful and it's hard and it hurts and we wish he would stop and pull us out of this season, but God promises, friends, to do things in our pain that he does not promise to do in our uh, joy and comfort. He promises us to speak to us in ways uh, through our sorrow that he does not promise uh, in ways through our joy. And we miss seeing God's hand because we think he should just spare us from all of these things. Here's the third thing. See, Samson doesn't just miss, um, he doesn't just miss his own sin. He doesn't miss God's hand only. I think there's a really interesting thing that uh, he misses and really all of the Israelites miss in his story. You see, as you keep reading chapter 15, you get into Samson's story a bit more and uh, he, things get to a boiling point between himself uh, and the Philistines. It's like he is constantly poking them in the eye, just aggravating them a little bit more. Uh, and something then happens that breaks the, the pattern in the book of Judges. Remember, I showed you that cycle. Uh, it was up on the screen behind me for a second where uh, Israel always gets to a point where they cry out for deliverance. God raises up a deliverer who gets an army and they, are, uh, they finally deliver Israel so they can go back to doing the thing that they're supposed to do. Well, in Samson's story, an army is raised, but this time it's not an Israelite army against the Philistines. It's the Israelite army who is gathered to confront Samson. And they say, Samson, stop annoying the Philistines. Yes, they are in power over us right now, uh, but we got a pretty okay thing going on right now. Don't rock the boat. The status quo is fine the way that it is. You see this in verse 11, chapter 15, verse 11 and 12. 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this you have done to us? And he said to them, uh, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. They're done with him. What, what, what's happened here? They look at the one that God has raised up as a deliverer and they deliver him over into the hands of their enemies. They, they miss their need of a rescuer. They have missed their need of a rescuer. And I think this happens in the blindness of uh, the, the, the marriage they have entered into where they have been formed to think this, you know, what, what we have right now, this is fine, we're okay with it. Uh, you know, we, the, the value system of what the Lord has said, this is how I want you to live, that's gone out the window. They're okay with the things, the way, way things are right now and they miss their need of a rescuer. My friends, I think we do the same thing in our own lives. This is one of the hardest questions sometimes as I'm talking with folks who, who aren't followers of Jesus and you may have uh, your own story right now of trying to understand you know, what, who Jesus is, what he means in your life. You know, one of the biggest barriers I get to, especially in 21st century Western culture in a center of affluence like Columbus and in Worthington in particular is th there is this enormous barrier that says like, what do, what do I need a savior for? My life is pretty good. My life is pretty good. 
When I got what I want, if I, if I want something else, I'll go buy it. I can chase after it. We are in this unique cultural moment where for the, for the most part, many of us can provide for our own needs. And on top of that, we live in a uh, cultural zeitgeist or milieu right now that says you should be doing that. Like you shouldn't need anybody else's help. In fact, that proves that you are weak. You're not man enough, that you're not woman enough, that you're not mom enough if you need help. You, You should be able to get after it yourself. That's part of the American DNA. We're formed by this and we miss our need of a savior who is one who has not overlooked our brokenness, who has not overlooked our failure, but comes to us in the middle of our need. I mean, this is where the story of the gospel confronts us with a very different picture, a very different kind of deliverer than Samson. One who has not just missed our sin, who has not just missed our uh, need, who has not just, uh, you know, missed God's hand, but the person and work of Jesus steps into our stories while we were still sinners, the book of Romans says, that while we were brokenness, that while we were enemies of God, Jesus steps in and says, I am going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'm gonna offer to you what you cannot gain for yourself, what you cannot build for yourself, what you cannot construct enough for yourself. And Jesus living the life we should have lived perfectly obedient to all of what God has commanded us uh, now uh, steps into our place and and, 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 uh, on the cross dies the death that you and I should have died for our sin and failure to live the way that God has created. And he rose again from the dead with the promise and hope of, of new life for any who would trust in him and his work on the cross. And he says, I now have a new way of life for you, a new way of life, a new way of being, of existing in the world around you. And it does not look like slavery. It does not look like blindness. It does not look like, it looks like uh, seeing, uh, seeing what God really has for you and your life. A beautiful picture of what Jesus steps in to do in a, as a deliverer in a way that is profoundly different from what Samson can pull out is he has married into the culture, we have married into the culture, the Israelites have married into the culture, and they are, we are blind to our own sin. We cannot see our own sin. We are, we often miss God's hand, and we miss seeing our need of a rescuer. And friends, I think, I think this is gonna happen in every one of these stories we look at over the next few weeks, but there's something about uh, Samson's story that has just has gripped me in the last two weeks as I've been studying this. It's, it's a question that, maybe it's haunting to me because I'm a pastor. You may hear this question and be like, Dan, that's a stupid question. Nobody cares about that. But my, my question has been this. If Samson missed this, if Israel missed this, if we missed this, what happens to a church that misses this? What happens to a a church that marries into the culture around it? 
and then begins to let the world around us dictate uh, what we should be about and uh, how, how we should go about doing it and to what ends we operate for. What happens to a church like that? Because uh, what we will notice is that if we are profoundly formative beings, then the church is made up of people who are profoundly uh, being formed by the world around us. What happens to a church when we give ourselves over to the formative power of the cultural moment we live in? And the reason I bring this up is not because I think LifePoint has somehow figured out the secret sauce to avoid being formed uh, uh, by the world around us. It's because I think we face a very deep and real threat and temptation to the allure of what the world around us says, hey, this is what success looks like. This is what you should be about as a church. And what we notice uh, is that everything else in our lives, everything we buy, everything we chase after, everything we engage with all tells the same story as something that is bigger, newer, better, and faster is what you really need to be about. And friends, this is the same, church, the same temptation our church, LifePoint Worthington, will face head on as we head into this new year. That what success looks like for us is to be bigger, better, faster, more influential. And for me, gosh, I mean, I I feel like I've shared this several times. I feel like sometimes preaching is like a counseling session that you all get to just listen to uh, as I process some things out loud. But there's some very real heart dangers in my mind. If, if, If success for me as a pastor and for our church is to just be bigger, faster, and better, we're gonna end up in this endless rat race that I see so many other churches uh, involved in. And I'm not talking about like a specific one, you know, anywhere around here. I'm talking about the the general thrust of evangelicalism today. There is this endless rat race to be the next thing, to have the best fill in the blank, to have the best music, to have the best teaching, to have the best children's ministry, to have the best content creation team. And the reality is, if that's what we're chasing after, to have the best, what we will inevitably find at the end of that road is there will always be a better show. You know how devastating it is sometimes to like feel like I can stand up and preach my guts out and then know that at any given moment you have access to thousands of better sermons on your phone? <laughs> but, but, there is always something better. There will always be something better. And when we tell ourselves as a church that what we need to be about is achieving that, getting to that level, getting to that status, getting to that level of influence, what we will find is not only do we miss our own sin, oh my goodness, is that the story of the church throughout history? We've been blind to our own failure. We've been blind to our own sin. Read the story of the church in the Middle Ages It's all about power, influence, not about uh, seeing people transformed, but by seeing people occupied. We miss our own sin. We we, we miss God's hand at work. I mean, if that wasn't the story of uh, churches that tried to navigate through the COVID season, right? All we wanted to do was just get right back to the way things were, and yet we we missed seeing, like, maybe God is telling us that there's something we're not quite doing right. Loved how one uh, author put it. He said the church uh, has been, like, playing a chess game for the last 40 years, uh, or for the last last two millennia, and uh, the queen has been the Sunday morning gathering, and we've never used any other piece, and now in this season, we're, we're having to learn how to play with every other piece, 
Man, I feel like we, we miss seeing sometimes what God was doing in that season for us and being formed by that. Sometimes the church misses seeing its need of a rescuer and the church becomes a place where you feel like you have to put on the show uh, that you never really needed Jesus to begin with. We're afraid of confession. We're afraid of being vulnerable with one another in life group because of uh, the, this, this ideal picture we have to live up to. And we miss seeing the beauty of gospel community is that I need Jesus just as much as you do. I need him today just as much as the day I did when I first became a follower of Christ, and so do you. Friends, we miss seeing our purpose. We miss seeing what God has called us to if we're constantly chasing after this bigger, better, faster image of what the church should be. So let me close with this. Friends, this is a reminder to me, Samson's story. I said it's like the shadow side of God's people. This is a reminder to me of what God has actually called us to focus on as his people, as his church in LifePoint Worthington. Man, we want to be not just a bigger, faster growing church for our name's sake, for our fame, but we want to see Jesus made famous in this community. And that may have nothing to do with the name of LifePoint. You know, we've been praying for this since our very first Sunday together, that the Lord would entrust to our care 1% of the city of Worthington. It's 140 people who right now are not followers of Jesus who would hear the good news of Jesus and see transformation take place in their lives. Not for our fame, but for Jesus' fame in this community. We want to be about that. And if growth is a byproduct of seeing transformation, praise the Lord, but it is not the end goal. We want to see Jesus made famous in this community. We want to see Jesus made famous among the nations at LifePoint. We want to create space for us to tangibly be a part of taking the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And so we have opportunities every year for members to, to go on one of our mission teams uh, to all over the world. We have a team coming up in July, leaving from, uh, from LifePoint that's going to be led by our own Jason Phillips, who's going to be leading a team to India. We'd love for you to prayerfully consider, hey, is there a role for me on that team? Why? Not so that you can have a great experience that you can put on the gram uh, and show off a little bit, but so that you can be a part of God's work of drawing people uh, from the nations to himself. See, that is us getting back uh, to the initial identity that God gave to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. That's getting back to the initial identity that God gave to Moses, that he was raised up so that his name would be famous among the earth. That is getting back to what God called his people in the book of Deuteronomy, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, because there is none, none, like him. Friends, that's what we want to be about. And so there is a reaching priority for us at LifePoint to see the nations come to him. Let me pray. We'll finish up. Lord, we are so... God, we're grateful for your kindness to us. We pray that long after we leave this place today, you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask that you remind us of the, the, the precarious moment we are in as a young church, 
Lord, we can get so easily distracted by uh, the, uh, the, the allure of something that is big. And it's not bad. But Lord, if we, if we mistake our purpose with just being bigger, if we buy into that cultural value system, if we are married into that system and don't recognize it, we end up missing our sin. We miss your hand. We miss our need of a rescuer. And we miss our purpose to make you famous in this city and in this world. So Lord, we trust you to show us where you would use us We want to be available to your hand, to your leading, to your agenda. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.